The Mystery File Collective is intended for mature audiences. The following content may contain material that some people find triggering. If you feel disturbed by tales of murder, mystery, or myth, if you believe that they could traumatize you, we implore you to use your discretion before listening. This is the story of the biggest unsolved serial murder case in British criminal history. The true story of a killer even more prolific than Jack the Ripper. The story of a series of unsolved, horrifying killings that have come to be known as the Hammersmith nude murders. The murders all took place during London's swinging 60s. London at the time had developed a vibrant reputation, being celebrated around the world as the capital of fashion, film and pop culture. Yet a darker, more horrifying nightmare was beginning to unfold on the streets. A serial killer was acting out his fantasies, sadistically murdering six women. His M.O. was unmistakable, marking these evil murders as the work of one man. He would abduct his victims from the red light district of London. He would then strangle them, strip them, and remove their teeth. The evil sadistic killings ignited one of the biggest police manhunts Britain has ever seen. But the monster was never caught. There was never a genuine prime suspect. Never an answer to the identity of the monster that the press nicknamed Jack the Stripper. Hannah Tailford's body, naked except for stockings and underclothes stuffed into her mouth, was found in the river. In April, the river cast up at Chiswick the new tattooed body of Irene Lockwood. She had not been dead for very long. The same month, a mile from the river, another tattooed prostitute, Helen Bartholomew, was found in Brentford. Acton again, July. Mary Fleming's body was dumped in a cul-de-sac. In the night, neighbors heard a car stop, reverse, and roar away in panic. Four months later, the tattooed body of Francis Brown was found in a car park. In the murder room at Shepherd's Bush, Police have checked every day, but they have found enough similarities to convince them that the killings are the work of one man. 
the work of one man. It all began one frosty London morning. It was Sunday, the 2nd of February, 1964. A cold frost permeated the air in London. In the distance, church bells rang out above the sound of the River Thames lapping gently upon its banks. Two brothers, Douglas and George Capon, members of the Corinthian Sailing Club, stood on the landing stage that nestled on the Thames foreshore below the clubhouse. They took a moment to appreciate the beauty of the view as the overnight fog began to lift upon the river. It was a beautiful setting, expansive views east towards Hammersmith Bridge and west towards Chiswick Ayot. The brothers were preparing a rescue dinghy for a race later that afternoon, when suddenly George spotted something that tightened his gut. A prickling sensation began to spread across his scalp and down his spine. A pale human figure was lying face down in the water, caught under the landing stage of the pontoon. Initially they convinced themselves that it was a mannequin, partly annoyed at the continued pollution on this stretch of river. For just a couple of miles upstream, the factories in Chiswick and Bramford also met the river. But on closer inspection, their deepest fears were realized. It was not a mannequin at all, but the body of a woman. A moment of stillness hung between the two brothers as they stared breathlessly at the dead body floating beneath them. The water lapped gently around the lifeless corpse, her feet pointing towards Hammersmith Bridge. She was naked, apart from her stockings that had been pulled down around her ankles. George quickly ran to the nearest phone to call the police, while Douglas waited with the body to prevent anyone witnessing the horrors that floated in the shallows beneath. Very quickly, police officers arrived with an inspector to pull the naked corpse out of the water. Divisional Police Surgeon John Steen was called to pronounce life extinct. Little did they know the poor woman that they dragged from the Thames that ice-cold morning would be the first of six recognized victims of the sadistic murderer who hunted on the streets of West London. Initially, the police surgeon could see no clear injuries. Her body bloated, her hands in a particular bad way, sodden and semi-closed. Her eyes were blood-red, and the skin on her torso was a mottled blue, angry around the abdomen. He concluded that she had been in the water for some time, 
perhaps a few days. The inspector with Steen at the crime scene noted that she had an item of clothing stuffed in her mouth. This would turn out to be her semen-stained knickers. At 3.30pm, the woman was taken to Hammersmith Mortuary, where a police pathologist was waiting for her. Dr. Tia discovered that she had brown hair and brown eyes. She was five feet two inches in height, a fact that was later to become very significant. He also noted the lady had several missing teeth, a fact that would also become highly significant. She was pregnant, and there was also a scar from a caesarean operation that the girl had had at some point in her past. She was a mother to someone somewhere, perhaps more than one. Poor thing. Disturbingly, the pathologist also found bruising on her lower jaw, injuries sustained while she was still alive, perhaps from a series of punches. She had been fed when he cut her open. In her stomach was a rather large meal. Judging by the sodden condition of her body, the pathologist concluded that she had been in the Thames for some time, perhaps 24 hours to 7 days. Hannah Tailford would later be identified by her fingerprints, then by her sister who lived in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Although Hannah Tailford had been reported missing for 10 days, Police concluded by establishing the rise and fall of the river that the body had been thrown in the water some 24 hours earlier from Duke's Meadow, which borders the river about half a mile upstream. Duke's Meadow is an area of parkland with riverside walks, popular with couples and prostitutes with their clients. As the story of Hannah emerged, it was a pretty tragic one. She wasn't originally from London, but had found her way there as a teenage runaway. Like others, she too quickly found herself working as a prostitute in a scramble for survival on the London streets. She had three previous convictions for prostitution. During the investigation, there were many stories reported about Hannah. Hannah was believed to be involved in the making of sex tapes and working at sex parties. One story is that while she was working at a sex party for the rich and powerful, she was supposedly taken to a house and paid to have sex with a man dressed as a gorilla, while bystanders watched and applauded. Despite the stories, there can be little question that Hannah at least worked sex parties. 
due to Hannah Tailford's history of working at these set parties for the members of high society, there was one police theory that her murder may well be connected to high society and their sex parties. Police subsequently interviewed hundreds of people whilst investigating her murder, focusing on men who were known to have used prostitutes. A French diplomat was rumoured to be one of those interviewed, who apparently she visited for orgies at Dolphin Square. Another was reported to be an international footballer. Despite the high number of people interviewed about the murder, no one was arrested for the murder of Hannah Tailford. On April the 28th, the inquest was heard at Hammersmith Coroner's Court. It became clear how difficult a job the police had punching through the wall of the seat that was part and parcel of the life of those that used sex workers such as Hannah at that time. She had a diary of contact but most of whom seemed to be false names and addresses that did not exist, proving a real headache for detectives. The police devoted many hundreds of hours trying to establish what happened to Hannah in the final days of her life, and they ended up with more questions than answers. Of all the lies and deceit they encountered during their investigation, one stone-cold fact would soon be established. Hannah Tailford met the same killer the five more women would meet in an evil campaign of murder that would take place for the next 12 months. The murderer, whoever he was, was free to walk the streets to kill and kill again. It was nine weeks after the discovery of Hannah Tailford that another victim fell prey to the evil killer. It was the Thames again that washed up her naked body near Courtney Reach Steps, Chiswick, not too far from Duke's Meadows, the investigation focal point for the murder of Hannah Tailford. Like the first victim, this girl had been murdered somewhere else, and her body carried to the river. On the 8th of April 1964, Sergeant Robert Powell of Riverside Police was patrolling when he saw her. Reportedly, the first point of note was the wound on her torso, just above the right breast, although this was thought not to be the work of the killer. Rather, her lifeless corpse had been struck by the passing propeller blade of an innocent riverboat. Corny Reach is just 300 yards upstream from where the body of Hannah Tailford was found in the river. She was short in height, just five feet tall. She was also naked with some of her teeth missing. Her body was covered in dirt but was described as being recently acquired by pathologist Dr. Donald Tia.
presumably from the river and the ground where she had been washed up. She had bottled blonde hair, a distinctive tattoo that said, in memory of John, and this, together with her fingerprints, led to her being identified as Irene Lockwood. Her landlady, Irene Edwards, would confirm the identity of the deceased later at Acton Mortuary. Dr. Donald Tear was the pathologist that conducted the post-mortem at Acton Mortuary, where he discovered the deceased, like the previous victim, was also pregnant, approximately four months. The wound on her breast was concluded to have been caused post-mortem, probably as mentioned by the propeller of a riverboat, and the pathologist concluded that her body had not been in the water for more than 48 hours. Because she had not been in the water for too long, it was the conclusion that her clothes would not have been washed away, and therefore it was reasonable to assume that the woman was the victim of murder. This was a problem for Shepherd's Bush Police, who were already knee-deep in the Hannah Tailford investigation. They now had to open up a new incident room to carry out this new investigation. A new murder. A new team. The incident room's first job was to establish who this latest victim was and if there was a link between the two women who had been recently murdered and found washed up by the river within close proximity. Much like the case of Hannah Tailford, it is hard to establish truth from fiction when it comes to the life and death of Irene Lockwood. She went by several aliases. Sandra Russell, Barbara Norton, Sandra Lockwood, Barbara Lockwood were all names that at times she adopted. Her landlady who identified her knew her as Sandra Russell. So who was this latest victim of murder? Who was Irene Lockwood? To begin, much like the previous victim Hannah Tailford, Irene had a criminal record. Fourteen convictions all told, including five counts for soliciting. Irene, again like Hannah Tailford, wasn't a Londoner, but found her way there and into the dark, seedy world of prostitution. Much like Tailford, it is also strongly believed that Irene Lockwood was involved in other areas of the sex industry, such as making pornographic videos and photographs, attending sex parties and orgies. She was thought to be involved in a scam with another prostitute, Vicky Pender, posing for indecent pornographic photographs with clients and blackmailing them with the evidence later. 
just a year before Irene's tragic death. Her partner in this scam, Vicky Pender, was battered to death in a North London flat. A former paratrooper by the name of Colin Fisher was later convicted of the murder of Vicky Pender and was found to have possession of roughly 500 pornographic photos of both women. Beyond these police records, tracking down the finer details of Irene Lockwood's chaotic life, in which she used many aliases, would prove to be difficult. Her last known whereabouts came from a sighting of her on the evening of the 7th of April at the Windmill Pub, Chiswick High Road, less than a mile from where her naked body would be found. Police made a public appeal for further details to try to establish why she was here and who she was with. The appeal asked for information about what she may have done that day, who she may have met, stating that she could often be found at Kensington Church Street and Charing Cross. Her favourite outfit was a fake leopard print coat, a tight skirt and three-quarter length boots. But the appeal turned up little regarding the victim's movements that day. Then the case took an extraordinary twist. Less than three weeks after Irene Lockwood's death, on April the 27th, a man named Kenneth Archibald walked into Notting Hill Police Station and confessed to the murder of Irene Lockwood. He was 57 years of age and worked as a caretaker at the Holland Park Tennis Club. He had already been questioned about Irene, who he claimed he didn't know, after they found a business card at her flat with his name on. This time Archibald told police that he did know Lockwood, and on the night of her murder, he had a drunken argument with her which ended with him putting his hands around her throat and throwing her in the river. Despite the confession, the police weren't totally convinced. They were positive that Irene Lockwood's murder was connected to the murder of Hannah Tailford, and Kenneth Archibald had an alibi for the first crime. More importantly, Another victim was discovered just days before his confession, which we shall explore in detail soon. Despite police suspecting Kenneth Archibald was lying and believing the murder of Irene Lockwood and Hannah Tailford to be the work of one man, Kenneth Archibald stood by his story and the pathologist declared that there was nothing in the man's confession that contravened the physical evidence, and he was committed to court trial for the murder of Irene Lockwood in June. However, upon his trial, Archibald recounted his confession to the murder of Irene Lockwood, 
saying that he made the claim due to being drunk and depressed. With his confession being the only piece of evidence against Archibald, it took the jury less than an hour to reach their decision, finding him not guilty. This meant that the real killer was still on the loose, and it was highly likely to have been the same killer that murdered Hannah Tailford, and probably had already killed again. On April the 24th, 1964, just over two weeks after the murder of Irene Lockwood, the naked body of a woman was found in an alleyway near Boston Manor Road, Brentford. She was the third murdered woman found since February, and the second one in April. She had been strangled with a ligature and the marks on her neck suggested a fierce struggle during the act. Like the previous two victims, Helen was also missing three front teeth. Her nose and cheekbone were also swollen, in the manner of consistently being punched. Unlike Hannah Tailford and Irene Lockwood, this body was found in an alleyway. The killer on this occasion avoided the Thames, possibly avoiding a heightened police presence near the river. The body was found at approximately 7am of the morning of the 24th of April by local resident Clark May. He was going out the back of 199 Boston Manor Road, when he found her body by the rubbish. He said, I opened the gate and saw a naked body just lying outside. I didn't touch anything, but immediately returned to my home and telephoned the police at Brentford. I cannot remember how the body was lying. I was just so shocked seeing it lying there. It was the same pathologist, Dr. Donald Teer, that was waiting for the body at Acton Mortuary. He concluded that the young woman had been dead for between 20 hours and 3 days. The body itself was covered in dirt. Asphyxia was the cause of death, and was probably done with an item of clothing, pulled around her neck and tightened in common with the previous two victims. The body had fluid that had accumulated in the lower part of the abdomen, indicating that she had been laid on her back after death. Interestingly, there were markings on her skin from her bra and knickers, indicating that her underwear had been removed after death. The swelling on her cheek and on her nose was probably caused by punches, 
and there was the familiar pattern of bruising around the jaw. Four of her teeth were missing, removed after death. A piece of tooth was lodged in her throat. When the dirt on the body was analyzed, it revealed a clue. Lead-based paint particles were found amidst the dirt, and when those particles were examined, they were thought to have been airborne when they met the body, as if coming from a spray gun nozzle. Most notably, the color black as used in the automotive industry. Perhaps the killer worked in a garage that sprayed cars, or had access to one. And this is where he stored the body. Police were excited by the discovery. This clue was something they could grab hold of. They believed if they could find the garage where the paint was used, they could find the killer. Fingerprints identified the victim as Helen Bartholomew, also known as Teddy. She was 22 years old and originally from Glasgow. Like the previous two victims, she also had a criminal record. She had lived in London from being a young teen and used the aliases Helen Thompson and Helen Paul. She lived in a flat just north of Notting Hill. Despite the distraction of the Kenneth Archibald confession, it was now as clear as day that there was a sadistic serial killer walking the streets of London, killing prostitutes. And though she had not been found in the river like Tailford or Lockwood, police easily made the link to those murders due to the similarities. A clear pattern was emerging. All the victims were prostitutes, and they were also short in stature, between five and five feet two inches in height, and all had had some teeth removed. Finally, they were all naked, and the clothing had never been recovered. Helen had come to London from Blackpool, describing herself as a striptease artist. This came after her release from prison for a crime of aggravated burglary that was squashed upon appeal. She was a striptease artist and a prostitute in Blackpool, and soon took up the profession in London. The press had now linked the killings to the work of one man, and were vaunting headlines like Maniac Sex Killer on the Loose in London. The news of the world went with Scotland Yard Ace Hunt Strip Killer, and the moniker Jack the Stripper for the killer was born, echoing the infamous Jack the Ripper, who struck the streets of London, butchering prostitutes, 70 years before. The sudden spotlight placed on the area 
was a nagging worry for the police. They worried that the killer would seek a hunting ground elsewhere. After all, he did seem very methodical, well thought out. And the sudden change in deposition site was a sign that the killer could and would adapt. It is strongly suspected that the elusive killer known as Jack the Stripper deposited the body of Helen Bartholomew in an urban back entry due to increased police presence near the riverbanks. It was decided that more police were needed across all areas and they began logging any car registration numbers seen in the areas during hours of darkness. They also started to place female officers out on the streets disguised as prostitutes in the hope of luring the killer. Sadly, this failed to prevent Jack the Stripper from striking again. It was the early hours of the morning, approximately 4.45 a.m. on July the 14th. George Hurd, a chauffeur of number 52 Berrymead Road, was getting himself ready to take his daughter to Acton, where she was joining a trip to France. When he looked out of the window, he found a naked woman seated upright against the garage entrance of number 48. She was sort of cross-legged, with arms folded and her head slumped forward. Her clothes were nowhere to be seen. He called 999 and reported his discovery to the police. News of another body was the last thing Scotland Yard needed to hear. The pressure from the press was already becoming difficult to manage. A couple of constables from Shepherd's Bush were first on the scene, followed by a number of dedicated murder detectives. When questioned about there being anything in the night that he heard, that he may have noticed out of the ordinary, George Heard told the police, that he was awoken between the hours of 2 and 3 a.m. by the sound of what he thought was a reversing car. He said he didn't think much about it at the time, as cars often go up the road by mistake, not realizing it's a cul-de-sac. It happens a lot. As the investigation found out, other neighbors reported a car coming, reversing, then flying away after 1am. A little after 8am, the pathologist, Dr. Tia, arrived on scene. He took a moment to take in the body before him. She was sat almost upright, with her head and torso lurching forward over the right knee. The corpse was covered with similarly dusty dirt, and there was, again, the accumulation of blood or fluid beneath the skin on her back. There were marks on her flesh that indicated where her underwear had been. 
suggesting again that her underwear had been removed after death, exactly like the previous victim. Shortly after 11am, Dr. Trier conducted the post-mortem at Hammersmith Mortuary. The victim, like the previous victims, had died of asphyxia caused by strangulation. There was evidence of a struggle. Marks and abrasions below the chin where she had fought to loosen the ligature. There was a large bruise across her chest, probably caused by a powerful punch or a kick. A swollen eyelid and other cuts and bruises suggested a struggle. This woman had tried to fight. She had twelve teeth missing, and like the others, she was short in stature, just five feet one inches tall, and she weighed no more than eight stone. Finally, the same specks of paint found on the body of Helen Bartholomew were also present on the body of Mary Fleming, confirming without any doubt that the murderer was the same man. Fingerprints were used to identify her. She was 30 years of age, like the others, a known prostitute. Mary had worked as a prostitute for over a decade and was described as a tough cookie. She would openly tell the story of the time she fought an attacker who tried to strangle her. She was also wise enough to know the dangers of life working the streets and was known to carry a knife with her. Regretfully, this wasn't enough to stop her falling victim to the killer. If she was carrying a knife that evening, along with her clothes, it was never recovered. The killer was incredibly organized and at the same time taking great risks. On the morning of the murder just before 5am and moments before Mary's body was discovered, neighbors heard a vehicle reversing at speed down the street. Sadly, as fate would have it, no one actually saw the vehicle, and so the evil killer, Jack the Stripper, escaped into the early morning darkness like a ghost. Yet the police remained hopeful that they were closing in on him. They believed that they were turning up evidence, that their large operation would soon yield a positive result. The specks of paint now found on both bodies had come from airborne paint, from the nozzle of a spray gun, not a brush, and so garages and boatyards would be targeted. Once they had a match for the paint, they would know where the killer was storing the bodies before depositing them. They also felt that the killer was becoming a little cocky with this method of depositing the bodies. Arrogance was seeping through. They were now starting to feel that the killer would soon make a fatal mistake in his nonchalance. Furthermore, 
due to the hard work of what was now the largest police manhunt in British criminal history. Further clues to the identity of this killer were beginning to emerge. A group of painter and decorators had been working throughout the night to decorate the ABC restaurant on Chiswick High Road. A man named William Kirkham was painting the staff room at the back of the building, painting the window frames, overlooking the car park and Acton Lane. Mr. Kirkwin said, I saw a vehicle drive up the service road and reverse towards the pedestrian passageway, stopping and reversing for about eight to ten feet. A man got out of the driver's seat and walked around the rear of the van. He then went on to describe the man as aged between 25 and 35, five feet ten inches tall and clean shaven. He wore a suit. Apparently the man started walking around the side of the van, looking all about him, as if checking to see if the coast was clear before doing something. Apparently Kirkwin thought that he would wind the man up, so he shouted something to him, and the man saw the decorators watching him, and quickly rushed back to the driver's seat and sped away. Mr. Kirkwin could not give any registration details, but confirmed that it was a grey, estate-type vehicle. No windows that he remembered, like a van. Was this the killer? Dropping bodies in a residential area was high risk, and the killer's levels of confidence would be the undoing of the man. Or so they thought. They were mistaken. The inquest into Mary Fleming's death was held alongside Helen Bartholomew's at Ealing Coroner's Court on November the 2nd, 1964. The jury's verdict was the same for Mary Fleming as it was Helen Bartholomew. Murder by a person or persons unknown. The killings continued. At around 1.30pm on November the 25th, 1964, in a car park at the back of the library just off Kensington High Street, a civil defence officer named Dennis Sutton lifted a bin lid covering debris, curious to see what was underneath, horrified to discover the badly decomposing naked body of a woman. He immediately called for the police, and they were soon on hand to protect the crime scene and keep away the hawkish eyes of the press that were having a field day with the story of the sadistic serial killer on the loose murdering prostitutes. The police investigation team that gathered were greeted by a distressing sight. The naked woman that had been covered with a bin lid, wood and leaves was crawling with maggots, the body badly decomposed. 
they quickly got the lady transported to Hammersmith Mortuary, where Dr. Tear was waiting to conduct a post-mortem, and he was very quickly able to ascertain that the similarities of her death were too great for her not to be the latest victim of Jack the Stripper. The post-mortem was a difficult one, due to the condition of the body. There were the similar bruising and abrasions around the neck. Asphyxia caused by pressure on the neck was the conclusion. Like the victims before, there had been evidence of a struggle, of her hands clawing at the ligature around her neck in a fight for life. Clear white underwear marks were still visible on the flesh, despite her state of decomposition, suggesting that once again, the underwear had been removed after death. She had three teeth missing from her lower jaw. Unusually, she had had some plain paper placed in her vagina. Again, she was small, five feet one inches, and only seven stone in weight, the killer staying true to form in his selection of victim. And importantly, there were the same paint particles on the body, the same that had been found on the bodies of Bartholomew and Fleming. This woman's identity, however, was masked by her decomposed state. Much of her face had rotted away. She did have a distinctive tattoo, flowers with the name Helen and Mum and Dad. It was the victim's fingerprints that eventually confirmed her identity, although initially there was some confusion as to what her name actually was. Was she Margaret McGowan? or Francis Brown. McGowan was possibly an alias she gave, and that name had ended up on her final charge sheet, one of the many false names this lady took, others being Nula Rowlands, Anne Sutherland, Francis Quinn. It was difficult to establish how long her body had been festering in that car park. She was last seen alive on the 23rd of October, over a month before the discovery of her body. She had probably lay there for some time, slowly decomposing, whatever evidence was on her flesh degrading as she did so. Police were at a loss for any further clues that may unearth the identity of this evil killer. Whoever he may be, he had taken a relative cooling-off period of roughly three months since his previous murder. But why? Perhaps something had unnerved him. Perhaps it was the moment he was nearly spotted by the late-night decorators as he looked to deposit the body of his previous victim, if that man was indeed the killer. Perhaps he felt the police presence was too great, and that was strong enough for him to control his murderous impulses.
could he control them? Did he have that much constraint? Nonetheless, the killer's choice for this new deposition site was a brazen one. Was he taunting the police, leaving the body next to a vibrant, busy high street, often alive with people night and day? The car park where the body was left was also overlooked by houses. However, house-to-house -house inquiries on Horton Street and Campton Hill failed to find anyone who had seen any suspicious activity in the car park. The investigation was once more drawing a blank. A little digging into the life of Frances Brown revealed that she was born in Glasgow in 1943. At the age of 11, she was in juvenile court on the charge of theft, found guilty and put on probation for two years. And from there, it was a story of constant brushes with the law. Her first conviction for soliciting came in 1961, not long after she moved to London. And there were many more. It was believed that she had three children given up for adoption. She had given evidence also in the famous Stephen Ward and the Profumo Affair trial, a trial that featured many prostitutes, a spy, the legal establishment, and government officials. And this opened up the question. Was Jack the Stripper someone who mixed in these high echelons of society? Later, police would confirm that all witnesses in the Ward case had been interviewed over the lady's death. An attempt at trying to establish a solid prime suspect. Again, this proved a waste of time. But thanks to this connection and the belief that some of the other victims were involved in taking part in underground sex parties for the rich and powerful, several authors interested in the case have suggested people involved in the Profumo affair may well have been responsible for the Hammersmith nude murders. Perhaps more than one person was Jack the Stripper. It is all open to speculation. What we do know is that Frances Brown disappeared approximately one month before her body was discovered. She was last seen getting into the car of a man by her friend and fellow prostitute Kim Taylor when the pair went off with the two men separately. This again gave the police new hope of catching Jack the Stripper. Taylor was able to give a description of the men, resulting in an identical picture being released. They now had a face to go against the now terrifying name, Jack the Stripper. Unfortunately, despite the identical picture, nobody came forward with any information. Despite interviewing over a thousand individuals, Jack the Stripper was still at large, casting a fearful shadow upon the women that walked the streets. A prostitute 
and former friend of Francis Brown, who also gave evidence of the Stephen Ward case, said when being interviewed by a journalist, You know, we both gave evidence of the Stephen Ward trial. I can't help feeling that the murderer is a man who knows all about us working girls in Notting Hill and picks his next victim carefully. Next time it could be me. It's all too Jack the Ripperish for me. The killer was certainly proving to be highly skilled at keeping one step ahead of the police on the streets. And this begs the question, was he a member of the higher echelons of society that was killing these women? And was it just one man acting alone? Was the killer perhaps a police officer? Among one of the most intriguing stories to come out of the Francis Brown inquiry came from one of her friends, Vera Lynch. She retold the story that Francis Brown had told her in October, not long before she vanished. Francis Brown had told her that she had met a man that badly unnerved her. He was driving a small van. He stopped and she jumped in. He asked how much would it be for sex, and before she could answer, he produced a black police card with Metropolitan Police in gold letters written on it, saying that he was CID. She told him that he could not arrest her as he needed two officers to corroborate evidence when arresting a prostitute. To which the man smiled and said, there was an officer close by, and he would have no trouble taking her down the nick. The stranger then told her that she needed to watch her step, that there was a killer on the loose murdering prostitutes. Francis Brown asked how he was killing the girls, to which the stranger smiled and told her the method of the killer. He would pull the coat down over her shoulders, locking their arms, before screwing whatever it was the girl was wearing around the neck and strangulating them to death. The man gave Francis Brown the chills, so much so she opened the van door and jumped out. Before she escaped, the man gave her a pound although there had been no sex. Unfortunately, Francis Brown never described what the CID man looked like, nor did she know what the make of the van was. What she did say was there was a lot of junk in the back and that the van was grey. Was this the killer? Was the killer actually a cop? And this was how he was able to be so elusive. This was how he was staying one step ahead of the investigation. We will never know. The police at the time were issued with black cards with Metropolitan Police written in gold letters. The strange... CID man 
was driving a grey van. The same scene in Brentford and Chiswick, where the previous two bodies had been dumped. Was it possible that Francis Brown was already being stalked by the man who would eventually kill her? Was this part of the killer's M.O.? To acquaint himself with the victims beforehand, so that they knew him, before picking them up and eventually killing them. It could explain why none of the victims were ever caught getting into the car of the man that would kill them, especially in busy areas for prostitution, like Bayswater and Queensway. Perhaps this is why it was easy for him to get the women into his car. The women knew him, knew he was generous with his money, and he would be safe because he was a police officer. If the killer was a police officer, perhaps this is how he so expertly evaded capture to remain at large, to kill and kill again. On the 16th of February 1965, behind a storage shed on the Heron Trading Industrial Estate in Acton, Close to the West Acton railway track, another naked body of a woman was found. A man, by the name of Leonard Beecham, was on his way to work on the estate. He spotted two feet with bright red painted toenails sticking out from the undergrowth. Rather than investigate further on his own, he called his manager, Gerald Marshall, to help. The two men made the grim discovery of a body and called the police. They arrived very quickly, isolating the scene from view. And so, another investigation was underway. Was this another victim? Murdered at the cruel hands of the now notorious and ghostly Jack the Stripper. Not long after midday, the police pathologist arrived to inspect the crime scene and the body. From there, she was quickly taken to the mortuary where the post-mortem was conducted late in the afternoon. The deceased again was short, five feet one inches roughly nine stone in weight. She had a number of teeth missing. There were underwear marks, suggesting the underwear had again been removed after death. The cause of death was given as asphyxiation caused by pressure on the neck. The same particles of paint were also present and consistent with the bodies of Brown, Fleming, and Bartholomew. Fingerprint investigation revealed the body to belong to Bridie O'Hara. O'Hara's body was partially mummified. Police believe her body may have been stored in a dry environment.
for a prolonged period of time. Bridget was last seen on January the 11th, over a month before she was discovered. At this point, Detective Chief Superintendent DeRose was called in to take charge of the Hammersmith nude murders investigation. He had a reputation to bring a rapid close to unsolvable murders. His appointment was wildly celebrated by the press, one newspaper stating that he was the London detective that had never failed to solve the case. DeRose threw himself into the case, and after reading the thousands of witness statements, he created a profile. The killer was a local man, almost certainly a night worker, probably on the Heron trading estate. Almost in an instant, DeRose increased the number of officers working on the case. 200 new CID officers, 300 uniformed, and a further 100 ununiformed officers to create a new patrol group, an incredible sustained effort that would now take place to capture the killer. The factories on the Heron estate were methodically researched. The entirety of West London was isolated and all vehicles travelling from 8pm to 7am were logged. Any drivers moving in and out of the cordoned area more than three times were red flagged and placed on a list for interview. DuRose put enormous focus on finding the origins of the paint that had been found on the bodies. After a search that covered over 24 square miles, they finally found a matching sample, just feet from where Bridie O'Hara's body was discovered, a match to the paint found on all the bodies. It was in a boiler room of the now-abandoned Napier Aero Engines factory. Opposite was a coach builder's factory, the extractor fan in this factory's paint shop overlooked the abandoned Napier Aero Engines factory. Detectives found the fine paint spray had been blowing into the abandoned boiler room through a wire mesh opening. The boiler room was humid and would account for some of the effects seen on the deceased's bodies. Police now believe that the boiler room of the abandoned factory was where the body of Bridget O'Hara and the others had been stored. They had finally found their location. Now the police were convinced that they were closing in on the killer, known as Jack the Stripper. Detective Chief Superintendent DeRose even gave a statement in which he stated that they had whittled down their suspect list to just three names, and soon it would be one. After this statement was made, the killer stopped. There were no more victims discovered. The Hammersmith nude murders mysteriously ended. However, despite interviewing many thousands of individuals, and investigating hundreds of leads, the killer was never found. The man the media had labelled Jack the Stripper
disappeared into thin air.